Hello everyone, welcome to the Noted Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If there's a topic you'd like to cover on the show, feel free to email us at fromnowheretonothingpodcast at gmail.com or contact us on our Facebook page. In my humble opinion, Carlo Rovelli is the greatest science communicator of our time. His short books bridge the gap between his field-leading technical physics and the grounded emotional experience of the human condition by poetically distilling his theories and findings into meaningful language that tells the story of our universe. His book, White Holes, looks at the titular phenomenon through the lens of the framework he helped design, loop quantum gravity, and is what we're talking about today. All right, so we covered black holes last week. This week we are looking at their mathematical twin <laughs> or, or the ultimate end result apparently <laughs> yeah yeah and so this is um it's gonna be a lot different than the black hole episode despite the fact that mathematically um they're the same mm-hmm. solution to uh, the relativity equation so what is a white hole well as i understand it and Ravelli might give me a d minus on this but uh, <clears throat> a black hole if indeed it collapses and, and he's questioning some of some of that but uh, the ultimate there there is apparently an ultimate bottom so to speak but you you can't crunch down beyond a certain point and there is a kind of ricochet <laughs> And the white hole is the ricochet, which somehow, possibly, provides an opening to other other universes. So it's it's I picture it like a, a slinky or a spring going down as far as it can go, and then you move your hand and, and it pops back up. Hmm. But it also could be just you, you can't go any further. And then the bottom pops out. <laughs> so I think of a, a, yeah. a kind of a, a can or something. You're pressing on it, and then the pressure is so intense, pop the other side, and then you're out into another space. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I really like the slinky example. I think that highlights a lot of the aspects of it that that uh, Rovelli explains. But yeah, there's going to be a lot of D minuses and Fs handed out in this podcast. <laughs> so if if you're a physicist or a physics student, just just tune out. Just just, no, out. just, just I don't bother listening because we're going to get some stuff wrong. If you're a lay listener, don't take everything that we're saying as as the Bible truth. You never should with any topic. No, Obviously, we're no. just here having conversations and uh, you know parsing apart philosophical topics as as best we know them um, with the research that we've done. You can't enter a white hole. Mm-hmm. You can only exit it. Yeah. That's something else that he points out. Right. Yeah. So if you listen to our episode last week on black holes, we found out that a black hole happens when you have enough mass to gravitationally collapse to the point where the, the gravity is pulling so hard that even light can't escape from it. And then that creates this horizon around it. Um, and that is that's the black hole. There's the horizon where nothing can escape from it and you can't you can't see into it and then down 
inside the black hole, there is, and we'll put this in quotations at this point, a singularity mm-hmm. where, according to general relativity, space and time condenses to a singular point and they cease to exist. Or a rip, as I understand it from Ravelli, or yeah. a tear. A singularity can be a tear. Yeah. So, in general in relativity, fabric. yeah, in general relativity, there's a singularity and it's where a point in, in, of infinite density and infinite time. Rovelli is operating from a loop quantum gravity perspective where singularities, uh, it's, they're sort of questionable if they exist, right? So yeah. maybe we should talk about that. Does Rovelli's conception of a white hole vary greatly from previous ideas of a black hole or a white hole? As I understand it, not terribly. Uh, I think what he, he's doing is extending the possibilities about of what would happen because he's, you know, he, he's, he's, um, he's suggesting that if we could get into a black hole, as we talked about last week, we'd be stretched like taffy. Hmm. Um, but we'd eventually reach the singularity or the terror or whatever it is, which would, could take a matter of seconds, minutes, or hours by our watches inside the black hole. But, uh, a billion or two billion years could have passed in the outside. So the universe has changed much more. But when you get down there, if you pass through, it's like you're uh, a hand or a leg or something coming out into an utterly different place. And I think that his speculation about that is what's newer. Yeah, from what I gather, um, you know, it's interesting because black holes and white holes, right, from from a mathematical physics standpoint, they're actually pretty simple objects. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that the interpretations of the, the sort of macroscopic um, observations about them can change that much from theory to theory. But I think that some of the details are where things get tricky. Yeah. And what struck me about Ravelli's conception of white holes is to me, it seemed like the first one where this could, this is plausible, right? Because if you look at classical white holes, um, you know, it's the sort of thing where there's a lot of stuff in physics, right? Where physicists say, okay, well, this is a mathematical possibility, but there's no way it exists in reality. Hmm. And then science fiction writers are like, oh, okay, well, we're going to use that and we're going to do these cool things with it. It seems like even in science fiction, Right, like most people are like, no, white holes are too far fetched to even do anything with. Right, you have this, uh, but he know. makes it palatable. He makes it, yeah, say, yeah. He, he uses. Well, we were we were just talking about this before the show. That the thing, the Rovelli has become my favorite science writer, as in science writer for lay people, uh, because he not only indulges, he he embraces the lyricism and the poetic uh, nature of things and and doesn't back away from that at the same time that he acknowledges that all um, analogical thinking and anal- making analogies you're going to lose something in the process even as you gain some kind of understanding so it's not the same as the equations and and he says in the book that he has people asking him particular uh, Students who are, you know, I remember being a graduate student in my cups. <laughs> why are you? Why are you not using the proper language, sir? And and his response is, "You already know the proper language. 
if you're practicing this enough at a certain point in your graduate work or you're out in the field as a physicist, you don't need to hear all the terminology and see all the math. But for a person who we're trying to invite into thinking about this stuff, I don't want to use uh, overwhelming jargon that is specific to the field and important, but would drive somebody away. If you want that, you'll find it at the end of the book. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and so he he has a he has a he's a whimsy, a playfulness, and a vulnerable, uh, poetic kind of approach, especially in this book. But in order in the order of time and seven brief lessons on physics, the, the books that we we talk we enjoy his writing. Both of us do. Um, he'll he'll well he'll say something like this: We slip beyond the black hole's horizon and tumble down this crack in the universe. As we plunge, we see geometry fold. Hmm. That's an intuitive thing that you 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 feel like if you look at it long enough, you say, "I don't know what that means." But if you just hear it poetically, anybody's ever taken geometry, you think, "Okay." Eventually, you start to think of the whole universe as made of shapes, hmm. and they fold. And you start thinking about tesseracts, which he's not bringing up. But uh, uh, time and space pull and stretch, and finally, at the black hole's core, space and time dissolve. It, well, we we watch uh, pills dissolve, or or uh, things that we've accidentally dropped in drinks, and you know we we know what dissolving is, and. To think of time as just going, that's a really gripping uh, phraseology. Yeah. Um, and, and, and a white hole is born. So time dissolves, but then there's a white hole. And then what happens? Does it start all over again? Do we go to a new place? Is the white hole actually what the Big Bang is? We're just seeing the white part before it happens. And he doesn't pretend to know all of that. Yeah. But he also points out, yeah, and people thought the black holes couldn't possibly exist, and then we we found more than one, and we've actually photographed the black hole. You can't photograph a black hole, but you can photograph the horizon. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting looking at his his idea of white <coughs> holes versus classical ideas, because I think in what I saw in a lot of classical conceptions of them, right, is that they might they're extremely short-lived in a lot of cases right mm. so um there's usually a burst of energy and then they're done or anytime something interacts with the the horizon of a white hole it's finished or you know there's there's a lot of you know in in some mathematical conceptions of it there's so many qualifiers that make it fragile you know if it's too large it just collapses back into a black hole right? right so white holes were never seen as something that could practically exist in nature um whereas in Ravelli's conception right what we're seeing is not a black hole and a white hole as separate entities right. so much as a transformation from a black hole to a white hole Th and that's that was fresh yeah, and I think that that's that's the part that that brings it into not only gives white holes a sense of being realistic, but almost, you know, it's almost like a puzzle piece that it just fits where you go, now they almost seem necessary, right? Because I think that part of the fascination surrounding black holes is this, you know, this 
confounding problem of the singularity and, and what happens at the center and, and, you know, what's going on. And, you know, physicists, I, I, I think it's probably safe to say almost all physicists at this point believe that the singularity is an illusion, right? That the general relativity, it's not the general relativity is right. Um, so much as the equations are breaking down there. Yes. General relativity explains things better than almost any other theory that we know of at every level, except when you get to the infinities. And so that's where something new needs to be thought. Geometry folds. Yes. As he said, right? But I I think it's important that we, that we landed on and continue to keep the, the the theme going that because there are people who revile rovelli <laughs> um if you go to goodreads you'll you'll find some of them but the, 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 there are some really interesting if totally speculative cosmology and astrophysics here but there is an awful lot of poetic waffle surrounding it. Oh, poetic waffle! Watch out! You know, <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't want that stuff. I like waffles, is it? <laughs> and they fold. Yeah. It, 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 the, the, go on with this quotation: "Is this really science?" Bearing in mind, it's highly unlikely there will ever be good real-world evidence to support the theory. I'd suggest it is a scientific. To use Sabine Hassenfelder's term, uh, we've ah, another through, physicist right, we right? talked about. Not unscientific, but not supported by evidence. Another way of looking at it is hard science fiction. It's based on good current science, but as Rovelli says himself, I don't know if it is correct. I don't even know if white holes exist. So, so he's using Carl Sagan. This writer, uh, I don't know, he, she, whoever it is, is using Carl Sagan against Rovelli, saying okay, Carl Sagan says. Uh, extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence, but this book doesn't have extraordinary evidence, and it's poetic, and it's too expensive for a small book, and so I get into all this, you know, <laughs> grr, 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 go to your public library, order it in your library alone, that's what they're for. Uh, so, uh, I, I get it, I get why a hard science person, but, but having taught science writing and writing in the sciences which are not the same things over many years as someone who's fascinated with science and reading it as a layperson you know science writing you're you're you are talking about things at a level uh, co- uh commensurate with the the expected audience of other scientists writing in the sciences is trying to bring the sciences to lay people and you're always going to have that um I, I rather like what happens in a black hole as it transforms to a white mm-hmm. hole is in Rovelli's oh, theoretical conceptioning uh, that you're you're stretching. There's there's going to be distortion. And and that's okay because it still can give you some kind of idea. It's not okay if that's the only book you use to try to study black holes, and you're going to be a physicist, an astrophysicist, nope. And Novelli's not saying that. That's why he says all oh, the hard stuff is in the back. But I think we need this. We need less separation of the sciences from ordinary people because we see what's happening today mm. when, when people don't even, not everybody, but so many loud people do not pay any attention to the sciences, revile the sciences, 
poo-poo the sciences, or we don't need authority, we don't need people telling us how things work. Yeah, we do. <laughs> so you need yeah. both. Yeah, yeah. If, if Rovelli just wrote a book about white holes, but there was there was no science involved, right? He didn't yeah. he didn't put all of the stuff at the end. He didn't actually write scientific papers. Then, yeah, I think that the claims on those reviews would be justified. But he does, right? He's a leading physicist in loop quantum gravity. Um, you know, he's done the math. He's done the science. Um, the results, although not observable at this point, not experimentally feasible at this point, are supported by the theoretical framework, which has, if you look at the history of science, there's been plenty of things that were discovered in theory before they were observationally or experimentally discovered, yep. right? Yep. So, the, you know, using, all right, yeah, you know, yeah, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Well, Part of evidence, right, is a solid theoretical framework. You know, it's it doesn't mean that you need to have an observation, you need to have an experimental, you know, evidence. Those are all great things and they should follow as technology allows. But sometimes you just have to start with a, a solid theory, with the math that lines up and the explanations that make sense. That's that's the cornerstone of evidence. It is. And and I would further say that uh, to this to the person who's, who wrote this review, I, I understand. Uh, I, I I don't I don't not understand what what he's saying. But Ravelli's not making a claim. Yeah, he goes he's throughout not the book asserting an argument. Yeah, throughout several several times throughout the book, he says I've I've turned it over every way in my mind. Right? He, yeah, because he's trying to the. The best scientists are trying to disprove themselves before anybody else has a chance to, right? So he's he's actively looking for ways that the theory is wrong. And he's he's honest and vulnerable about that. And also vulnerable about, you know, the fact that we want to be right, you know? And so as yeah. scientists, you have that struggle inside of you. You want to be right, but you also want to be the first person to know if you're wrong you know and it's a very human thing it is a human thing and and the way that he asserts that human vulnerability is this extended metaphorical umbilicus between what he's talking about with white holes and passages from dante's inferno and dante's paradiso both of which are classic pieces of literature and he doesn't let it go. And the marvelous thing is that I was able to see Dante's work freshly through the eyes of this astrophysicist, this extraordinary writer, as an English major, right? And I, I could he he brought me fresh insight into the science, but he also invited me in uh, uh, as an artist because when I look at things, I'm seeing them. I did I did a triptych uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, just for myself for fun of 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 my take on uh, black hole a star collapsing, but a lot more happened in it. It was ink and watercolor. And my wife looked at it and said, "There's, there's something uh, very feminine here that's going on." And 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 
I realized that the explosion of the sun, the collapse of the sun, was also causing great um, stirring in the universe around the area. This is disturbing. This is this is changing the fabric of space and time. There's pain in that. If there is a sentient universe, I'm not asserting that there is, but but all of that could come out of reading Ravelli. As I was reading Ravelli at the same time. And and so it became personal and then it became also thinking across how uh, a major collapse can cause extended uh, transformations in everything around it, which can take us to the social or political world. And so Rovelli, in, in pursuing the metaphor, has done a great service to, to literature and to science and, and back to the, we bridge, we can bridge this. They do not have to be separate realms. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating that Javi does connecting, again, concepts that are the most abstract things we can think of with the most personal human things we can think yeah, of. Yeah. So back to the abstract. <laughs> back to the abstract. So we should probably explain to <clears throat> listeners how a white hole works. Um, so, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about classically how white holes are, are conceptualized. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of need to dwell there because, like we mentioned, most physicists don't think of it as something that it has any basis in reality. Mm-hmm. Rovelli's white holes are a little bit different. They definitely, there's something here that is tangible. So let's cover kind of how white holes, but more than that, really how the universe is constructed in loop quantum gravity. Do you feel comfortable giving an overview or do you want <laughs> Well, comfortable is an interesting word. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot and then you'll correct me. Um, so the universe is constructed, if constructed is, you know, that, that's a very mechanistic thing, but uh, let, let's go with it. It's, it's constructed of, of space time. Which uh, Rovelli uh, uh, asserts as a material, <laughs> and uh, and gravity is what shapes space-time. And if you're talking about a quantum loop, you're talking well, quantum. You're talking about a very, very, very extraordinarily small levels, but. Uh, I'm going back to the slinky, or a- anything that you can think of as an oscillation. The 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 utter collapse of into the most intense gravitational zone you could find loops back to a material being ejected into another space which then is going to create more gravity eventually. Uh, and he, and, he, and he, he does go back to the beginnings of the universe, but he's, he's, he's one of these writers, who, uh, scientists who suggest that a beginning, not the beginning, and, and there can be many beginnings 
uh, because as we talked about last week, there, we, we've mentioned in earlier episodes, there there is at least one set of theories that floating out there that, that we may actually be inside a black hole, seeing the universe from the unique perspective of that, uh, which means there are many universes, because ours would then be inside the black hole, uh, and eventually that can be the material for a, a new one. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting theory, right? Because a lot of a lot of um, other quantum theories and, and relativistic theories, right? They they don't assert that they're that space is made out of stuff, right? Hmm. Space is just um, you know what holds stuff. Hmm. Loop quantum gravity says no, space is itself stuff, stuff. Yeah. and so if it is itself stuff. Um, then you can't make anything smaller than what space is made out of. <laughs> and so that changes, and that's, that's really how they solve the problem of the singularity that's presented by relativity, right? Mm-hmm. Because in relativity, if you have a singularity, which is an infinite point of density where, where time ceases to exist, well, that doesn't work in loop quantum gravity because if you have discrete um, you know, pieces of space, then theoretically you compress them to a point where you can't compress them anymore because they're actually made out of stuff. So that's, that's where the, the slinky, um, and, and, works we, really and well. weaving and weaving yeah. because the, the, the spin. Well, I, 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 I collide. I, I conflate these terms sometimes. As I understand it from Ravelli's work, which is what he's so well known for is that, is that, there are finite loops built into the smallest levels of what is sometimes called quantum foam or spin foam. Again, all of these terms are so remarkably um, childlike in the best ways. <laughs> it's like kids playing. Um, what do we call this? Oh, let's call it, you know, uh, and I know there are some reasons that people have come up with the call things quarks and of other terms but to think of the universe as made out of ultimately these um, material that has loops and foam you start to think about uh, look really closely at if you know anyone who does knitting or you knew anyone that does weaving look really closely at something on a loom get up i've done this get up with a a magnifying glass and look at a piece of work that's unfinished on a loom and you see tendrils and you see holes that are not of that are not of equal size and and by looking at that i think it helps yeah, yeah, because that's where loop quantum gravity comes from, right? Is is that the space is woven out of loops, right? These the, the p- discrete pieces of space are woven together in these loops that make up reality. So, yeah, it, re- it gets rid of the singularity problem because if space is made out of stuff, you compress stuff. Well, you can't compress stuff infinitely. You can compress it very far, right, much farther right, than right. than Einstein thought we could, but eventually there comes a point where it can't be compressed any further and then once it reaches that point well what has to happen a bounce right and so um you know rovelli 
Rovelli's thought is influenced by um, a physicist that we've talked about and his ideas on the show before, Roger Penrose, Penrose right, who yeah. has um, the, the idea of the big bounce versus the big bang, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that, you know, our, the big bang was essentially, right, a, a white hole displacing all matter into the universe, right? And that this will be a cyclical phenomenon. Um, whether there's a big crunch where all the gravitational mass of the universe collapses back in and then bounces again, which we're discovering is probably not the case, or whether if the gravitational mass of the universe isn't sufficient to pull it back in, if it disperses out widely enough, equilibrium and thermodynamics will eventually make the universe into a state where it's in complete equilibrium and there is nothing which coincides perfectly with the initial conditions of the big bang and then it starts again mm -hmm. which in that in that theory i i like that one better right because if you have the the cyclical bounds um that's almost like a breath breathing in breathing out which is a very vedic Zen, yeah uh, even hindu view of the universe but it's also but the the other solution is also very similar, right? If you have this universe that expands out until there's nothing, and then it bounces again, that's almost like fractal or kaleidoscopic in nature. And mm -hmm. so that this idea of again the geometry folding, it seems to give me notions of that as well. Right? It, it it gives me. I, I keep going to the child like this. My my wife has has been a children's librarian for many years. And she enjoys it, and she works very creatively at it. And there's some story times that she does in which kids are dancing around with with little pieces of fabric, um, veils, right? And and they all get to choose the colors. But then there's a point at which she says, she says a, a little rhyme, and, and it's a jack-in-the-box rhyme. And so the kids have to scrunch those veils down as tightly as they can into their hands. And then when she says the right word, they pop them and the veils come right out at, at her. So suddenly out of these little hands, whoo, all of this fabric. And that takes me right back to this stuff, to Ravelli. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a lot of implications of, of that. And we've, we mentioned some of them briefly at the beginning. We'll start getting into some of them now. But yeah. I think that the big question at this point is in both general relativity and quantum mechanics space and time cease to exist at the singularity at the point in which either in general relativity you have an infinite point of density and space or in loop quantum gravity where the bounce occurs and the laws of relativity are violated regardless at each one of these points right space and time cease to exist <clears throat> philosophically what do we make of that <clears throat> well it's a stunning concept isn't it because it's rather asking us to climb out of every box there is <laughs> to get outside of everything that we know and that takes work and all I, can, uh, I think the, the thing I would say about this is this is where pop culture has given us some help. And interestingly, it's where 
uh, pop culture of a very, um, uh, it, it can be very theocratic, but also pop culture that's just like my, sure, Marvel. Okay, so often in, in, in television, in movies, if people have died or if they're close to death, uh, the directors, the scriptwriters, and so on will put put the figure of the character into a complete white zone. Sometimes there's music, sometimes there's not. There, there are no walls. There are no. There's no point of reference. You're you're just there. And sometimes then the writers will uh, sort of you'll be fading into a place where you want to be, but you know this isn't right, that I can't be there. It's very dreamlike. And sometimes it's just, I'm in this utterly white zone, but then I get pulled back. But each of those conceptions, and you've seen many, many over the years, that is what I use to try to picture what Ravelli's talking about with the utter dissolution of space and time. But it could also be like the walls of this studio, you know, the the, the checkerboard. Hmm. Because if you look at a checkerboard, if let's suppose the floor was a checkerboard, the ceiling's a checkerboard, it starts to, uh, you start to lose the boundaries. Yeah. Right? So uh, uh, an optical illusion. But it, if, if Ravelli is right, if the physicists are talking about this is right, it, might not be an illusion uh, of presumably, and this is where I think the critic was arguing that humans are not going to go down through a black hole to see this. He's taking us down through to help us try to see it. We're really not going to drive a ship down through and see it. And that's what pe people will say. Well, then why are we even bothering to talk about it? Because it makes us wonder, because if you start to think, even for a moment, Space and time might not exist. Whether you think that's heaven or hell or just an existential, fascinatingly interesting zone, it would, when you pull back out of thinking about that, you re see what's around you and you realize, okay, when we're done in this particular pub, <laughs> when the doors close on us, is it all done? We lose complete sentience. Nothing happens. Do we go somewhere else? Where do we go? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think that you're right on, right? Because, and that's what I was mentioning earlier in the show is the fascination with black holes, I think boils down to the singularity and then the, yeah. the perceived infeasibility of the white hole with an explanation to that. Um, Again, the analogy to the human experience, right? And the whole time you were talking about that, I was thinking about, you know, my, my studies in psychology mm -hmm. with, with near death experiences, right? Mm -hmm. What are the, the characteristics of getting closer to a singularity? Time slows down, space ceases to exist or becomes stretched. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what, in, that's what happens in a near death experience, right? People who have these experiences, time comes to a stop right they they review their whole lives all mm -hmm. these things happen the the space that they're in ceases to exist right sometimes they are outside of that space sometimes they're in a, a different space right so our experience mirrors that and death 
is the singularity of the black hole, right? And I think that a lot of us wonder, is there an Einstein Rosenbridge to a white hole somewhere beyond, right? Then, and so that is it, right? This, this abstract, abstruse concept that, that, that really shouldn't have any, um, you know, any meaning to anybody but, but physicists fascinates the imaginations of many people on earth. And I think that that is the sort of, um, you know, Jungian, you know, a subconscious that that is surrounding it is yeah. is this analogy that we draw between our experiences and the universe, and and that's it's wonderful that you mentioned that Jungian point because if it if it is something that's in a collective unconscious, then we have developed in that part of our minds, our brains, uh, uh, a vocabulary of images uh, and archetypes that help us try to come to terms with things. And, and, and so the science can speak to us. It's not going to give us answers. It's going to give us more possibilities, and that can frustrate people. But just to think about it freshly uh, is worth it it itself and so that you know when he's when he's going back to the dante again dante's the uh, the journey in these these books is through a twisted tunnel of layers of of hell that you finally come through to the other side and uh, emerge into a paradise and and that's why it can work for Ravelli. is okay maybe we go through a bunch of things and then we emerge somewhere else does that mean we start over again does that mean we we're back right back we we don't know yeah and that's the interesting you know when you when you look at it mathematically what happens on the other side is is very interesting so that kind of leads into the next question which is that you know time certainly transforms going from a black hole to a white hole does space transform enough to possibly emerge in another universe well, he's suggesting that it could. Um, but even that phrase, emerging in another universe, we, we live in a time that some people are already annoyed with the, the word multiverse now. <laughs> used in movies, used in science fiction, used in science. Okay, we've done with that because we've heard it too much. It's ridiculous. It's, yeah, the, human, the human incapacity for patience and <clears throat> long-term thinking. Oh, and and really <laughs> familiarity right yeah because and i think that we all fall prey Breeds to it sometimes contempt. it happens to me right <laughs> we sit here week in and week out talking about the biggest ideas in 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 reality right mm. and every once in a while it becomes familiar enough to me where i'm just thinking about it in this cold logical state and then suddenly <laughs> it will it'll hit me right yeah. suddenly it hits you that whoa Black holes exist out there. When you saw the picture of one for the first time, you go, whoa, yeah. this is a real thing, you know, or, or, or death, right? You go, whoa, I, I will die. We all will. The universe yes. is out there and we don't know if or what happened before it, right? You know, and so it, it's familiarity is, is, is the enemy of, of, 
curiosity and philosophy and and growth, right? Yeah, yeah, don't don't look there. These these are well, it's kind of like Obi Wan Kenobi saying these are not the droids you're looking for. Don't you're 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 too familiar with droids. You know these aren't the the ones. It's people can be misled so easily or distracted away from very meaningful things, and meaningful doesn't mean answers. Meaningful suggests how you process the possibilities. So back to your question here. So um, does matter emerge? And Rovelli suggesting that it could, but what does it mean to emerge in another universe? Is that universe going to look like ours? Who knows? Is that universe parallel in the sense that there are others of us iterations of us throughout the it's it's it seems possible according to some folks yeah i think it's interesting because i, I want to dig into this a little bit more so yeah. I'll, uh, to give a, a recap because i don't know that we've done it well enough at, at this point in the episode but so the way rovelli conceptualizes it right is there's black holes out there and they have the horizons and so as you approach the horizon time begins to slow to an outside observer watching you. Yes. But for you, your watch runs normally. You experience things as normal. You reach the event horizon. Nothing special happens for you. Once you cross into that zone where you can no longer leave again, you continue to experience time as usual. But the people outside see you frozen in time for eternity, right? Right. Or at least until the black hole evaporates <clears throat> or bounces into a white hole. Um. So once you cross that event horizon, and this was sort of the terrifying part to me, right, is when you get there, you will be experiencing the star collapsing, right? So that's that's horrifying to me. Well, but, it should be. But so here's the thing: that black hole, right, could be, and we are discovering them. Um, you know, and this this is another. To me, I'm very interested to see where the field of loop quantum gravity goes in the next few years because we're discovering supermassive black holes that are 13 billion years old, almost to the beginning of the universe. And every, almost every other uh, paradigm in physics is going, these can't exist. Whereas loop quantum gravity is saying, hmm, there might be supermassive black holes older than the universe and you go oh okay well you know and everybody else is going there's no way these things could accrete enough mass in this amount of time to get this big but loop quantum gravity right so if you have a a black hole that's old right so 13 you know and these these weren't made by stars so i should stop right there we're if we're talking about a stellar mass black hole you might see one that's that's billions of years old when you cross the event horizon you see the star collapsing and a lot of people go well how can the star still be collapsing after four billion years well it's because time has slowed down so much and you have to remember the if if at the singularity again in quotations time stops and the closer you get to the singularity the more time slows down then the four billion years outside that this black hole has existed is only fractions of a second down at the bottom yeah. So the star is still collapsing. For you, the star was will always be collapsing, right? But once you approach that singularity, um, when you get to that point, 
the Planck scale where you can no longer compress space and time any further. And again, you would not experience this. You would, we, you we would be vaporized. This. Right, right. <laughs> but, but matter, energy, um, <clears throat> you know, things in general, when they reach that, the Planck scale, um, and they can no longer be compressed any further, then they bounce back. Which is why I think your slinky example is perfect, right? You take that slinky and you compress it. It gets the space gets compressed and time gets compressed, but the energy is there. And then once it can't go any further, it has to bounce back. And when it bounces back, now the black hole is turned into a white hole. Um, and so from that that singularity, from that point. Now everything must leave. You have a spontaneous ejection of matter, light, information. <laughs> right. And so nothing can enter through that horizon. So what I was interested about, and what Valley doesn't cover in the book, and what I want to dig into further is, now, is it that the black hole in our universe has now transitioned into a white hole? Because there are some interesting things that he says about that, where on the outside... When a black hole transitions to a white hole, nothing changes to the outside observer. If you see an accretion disk, well, on a black hole, the matter's falling in and heating up. On a white hole, the matter is coming out and contacting anything in the outside universe and burning up. If something is heading towards a black hole, you see it slow down until it stops. If something's leaving a white hole, time is still you know, it's gravity is still stretching time so much that as it's leaving, it appears to be frozen. And the time scales to our eyes, right, in the finite amount of time and space that we experience under lower relativistic conditions are so different yeah. that there's to the to the outside observer, you, you don't see anything different. So what I'm curious about is, is the black hole in our universe turning into a white hole in our universe or is the black hole in our universe turning into a white hole in a different universe or in a different at least in a different space and time in the same universe i, I wasn't real clear on that so i need to that's the part that. that i think is happening the, the latter the second thing you mentioned and that's to be honest that's partly the the slinky the bounce that's the most confusing part for me. Mm. Because if matter is pressed so hard, because I, I think of a, a Play-Doh toy. <laughs> press, well, I'm sure you do the same thing in your factory of one, of one process or another. You press something in, eventually the Play-Doh comes scooting out uh, for whatever toy, ribbons, whatever. Um, it's in our universe, but... I think he's suggesting that it comes out in a different part of the universe or another universe entirely. But the bounce isn't the pressure that just keeps pressing until it, it's, it's like, to, to me, what he's saying is that there's a recoil. And if that's the case, then things aren't ejecting out the back. It's not like a cylinder with something ejecting out the back. Rather, there's a transformation, and it's recoiling, and the recoiling happens into a different space. Hmm. Yeah, and he does mention in the in the book that in loop quantum gravity, I'll, you know, the Big Bang is is 
you know, theorized in a similar way, except that it's happening in a different universe. So I think that he draws a distinction between white holes in our universe and mm-hmm. big bangs, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he mentions that they operate on similar physics, but they're not the same. And so. No, the, a white hole is not a big bang. Yeah, right. But the physics of them are are similar, so it's interesting, right? To think, okay, well, what what separates the two, and and what what is going on? And I and I would say probably the the most I don't want to say obvious because I don't think any it's obvious, but it would just be the amount of matter that comes out. I mean, if you if you have a black hole at the center of the galaxy and is drawing a galaxy's worth of stuff into it, and eventually it all gets drawn in. If we go with Newtonian physics, and I don't know that we can about this, but let's just run with it for a second, a galaxy's worth of stuff would come out. Where it comes out is, we're not sure, but it wouldn't be an entire new universe being created by one black hole. Yeah, and and from what he says later on in the book... Or from one white hole. The black hole, um, the way that that sort of works is, the horizon radiates away. Hawking radiation shrinks the horizon. But the inside of the black hole stays essentially the same. But then after the bounce, most of that, most of its energy has been radiated away. So the white hole itself is actually um, microscopic, right? It's, It's something that's very small and it radiates very weakly. So I think that the physics here, you know, I think that it's very similar to looking at, you know, okay, a stellar mass black hole versus a supermassive black hole versus a big bang, right? The physics is similar, but the scales are so different that the outcomes are not the same. The formations and the outcomes are not the same. And this is the strength of the book again, because he's not trying to tell us this is exactly how it works or would work or might work and that's why he keeps referring to um uh, his partner his fr- working by a friend hal so well hal and i would like this to be the case we would like to live long enough to see this discovered that kind of thing but it also opens up the door to how many other things there there are <clears throat> frozen you've read about this frozen the hypothesis is that there can be a frozen star. Hmm. We haven't seen one yet, but the science indicates it. We do know, and I think I, I sent this to you recently, the, uh, that, um, what's the proper word? Isotropism would indicate that when you're in any part of the universe, most of the universe essentially looks the same from wherever you are in the distribution of stars or those kind of things. But there's a very strange thing that's been found, again, with the web. Uh, So there's this arc of galaxies. And then within 12 degrees of that in the sky, that you see only with the the immense telescope power, um, there's a circle of galaxies. Billions of light years across. Nothing like it anywhere else in the sky. So, the idea of isotropism may not be universal. 
And there's just going to be a lot of work about that because of that observation. Yeah, which to me, even before the discovery of the big arc and the big ring, always seemed like just the most arbitrary rule in physics. Like, <laughs> why, why would we just assume that everything would be the same everywhere, right? Let's look. Let's look and find. Right? Let's not. Let's not guess how many teeth are in the horse's mouth. Let's go count them, right? And that's what this this doctoral student is doing that discovered these two things, mm-hmm. which, again, gives you answers um, that, as a physicist who's trying to construct a framework and view of reality, you don't really want to hear because it throws a big monkey wrench into everything, right? But it makes it throws some, a big arc into it. Yeah, but it makes everything much cooler. Um, and, and unstable. Well, it's cooler to me anyways. And Ravelli talks about that in his book, right? He talks about how, um, you know, lots of people are uncomfortable with, with not knowing stuff, but to him, it creates, I think he calls it a a light dizziness. He does. It's a lovely term. Yeah. And that's, that's what I get every week when we do the podcast talking about things and, and, you know, discovering more questions rather than answers. But he, he brilliantly talks about time and the human condition at the end of the book. Um, you want to recap that and discuss yeah. it for the audience? Yeah. I, and I'm sorry, my voice seems to be doing something strange, which is why I'm defaulting to you talking more. Uh-oh. But here's, here's a quotation that, that helps us with this uh, from the book. Um, who knows? Hal and I would love it if it were the case. As, are, the re- are they really out there? For that rapid first look, true love stories only open, never close. The story that I have told and retold in the writing and rewriting of these lines is hardly concluded. It is unfolding as ever. We look toward the mystery, trying to read the signs, peering through the dark. And and that's a conclusion to a set of passages that say, well... Maybe we will find these things. But essentially, to saying to me, but even if we don't, we're finding other things that are equally, um, eventually will be explicable. They may seem inexplicable now, but the science has got to keep opening our minds, not closing our minds. Yeah. And, and I love it. At, at the end there, he, he, <laughs> He gets really philosophical, right? He starts talking about quotes Spinoza and, he, and Aristotle and these other oh, yeah. people. When he's talking about the issues that we have conceptualizing them and, and really what it boils down to is time, right? How, how we struggle to conceptualize time as being differently from how we experience it. Um, and he, he presents this really good illustration of, um, how, you know, cause the, the equations in general relativity are time reversible. Anything should be able to go forwards or backwards in time, but that's not the way we experience it. And so he gives us this case study, right, of two tanks of water with a tube connecting them and how if you open one tank of water, if you have one tank of water that's higher, has more water than the other, and then you open the gate between the two, you know, the water will rush through, through the tube and create waves in the other tank until the tanks are the same size. Yeah. And he said, that's the one situation where if you run it backwards in time, you see something that doesn't make any sense, right? All of a sudden you see the water in the one tank becoming agitated by itself and rushing through a tube into the other tank just as the gate closes. And he goes, well, that's free energy. That's, that's entropy. That's dis, you know, thermodynamics. We've talked about this with, with the Boltzmann brain. Yes. 
right? And so this idea that, and we just mentioned it in the episode, actually, when we were talking about um, Penrose's idea of the big bounce and how if you, if the universe comes to a state of complete equilibrium where there's no difference, now it's actually the same as the water in the tank. Yeah, as the water in the tank. So basically, what it boils down to, right, is, is anytime there's in a disequilibrium, there's free energy. There's things, things are allowed to move. And he says, well, really, you know, the universe, and the stars moving and, you know, cars driving and time passing and you and me talking and our whole lives are just free energy in the universe due to a disequilibrium in the past. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's just traces of the past in the present due to that free energy. We are essentially just a wave of rushing water in the tank of the universe, you know? <laughs> There was an, a beginning point of equilibrium. There will be an end point of equilibrium, and we're just a wave in between. Everything that you see—that's all it is. And I thought that was a really interesting it, way of putting it. It is when he says space and time dissolve and then reform. Well, maybe a third tank gets added. <laughs> the door opens up, and the water runs down again. Maybe that's what part of the white hole is about yeah there's a really interesting video online you can watch it's on pbs um on youtube they do they do a little 13 minute video on white holes and you can sort of see this they do a really good job of visually demonstrating this with a penrose diagram which is a diagram that it's diamond shaped that's intersected by an x and y axis you know and um that shows hey this is the the distant past the distant future in time and zero space and infinite space in time. And the, the borders of that diamond are horizons, right? Horizons of the universe, mm-hmm. of the observable universe. And um, when you enter a black hole singularity, you're, you're going past one of those horizons. <laughs> and they demonstrate, they do a really good job of showing how you can't go back once you enter that one. And then the white hole on the other side, how you, you can leave, but you can't go back in that one. But an interesting part of that is that um, that singularity, when you get there, all of a sudden on the other side, there's a mirror image of the universe that that is outside of them, right? And it raises... So if you you should really go watch the video so you can see see it visually and, and have it explained by them. But but yeah, it, it raises those those philosophical questions that we were talking about earlier. What happens after the singularity? What happens after the universe ends? What happens after our deaths? Is it, is it nothingness? Is it a mere image? Do we relive this life again? Um, does a new universe appear in a different form, right? Is it reincarnation in a different type of body, right? Just <laughs> these parallels that you can draw and these questions that you can ask and these ways that you can conceptualize it that again seem very abstract. But in reality, it plays an enormous part in how you choose to live your life. Right? It does. If, because if you're an existential person, and you say, the only life we have is this one, and there's no meaning except the meaning that I make, and so on, then you can become a very moral 
or immoral or in between and live everybody's a good guy sometimes and villain others and lots in between um but it's lived in the idea that it's now and we don't know what happens then and that you or you can live saying well i'll put up with whatever's happening now because i know it's going to be better next time which is sort of that's sort of the the paradisical view of 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 religions or the, the paradisical view that uh, it's a stasis i'm just uh, we emerge uh, and life is all the same all just m- moments of praising the universe or whatever it happens to be these 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 disparate views uh, tell us that we don't know mm-hmm. and we can't know but we're human and we want to try to know yeah yeah and he says you know the he quotes richard kipling at the end talking about how you know in the jungle book you know all the animals identify this one thing we are of the same blood and he says anytime we talk about the universe we should talk about us you know because we like to think of ourselves as as being something other than the universe something that observes it the external observer of the black hole and all of the problems that that's created in physics, people who only think of the uh, external view of it. He said, when in reality, we are made of the stuff that the universe is made of. We are in, we're in it, we're right? In it. And we're all part of it. And that should really be a guiding force in, in how we choose to study it. Yes. So until next time, keep pondering. <laughs>